This is the Human Action Podcast with your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. I am joined by my partner in crime, Dr. Bob Murphy, who joins us actually as a new father for the third time. So how you doing, Bob? I'm doing all right. Uh, we're on day eight right now. And uh, wow. I, uh, when people, you know, when you read accounts of how the CIA is interrogating people and they deprive them of sleep, and you might think like, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. Well, have a newborn and then you'll see, oh yeah, you'll say anything because you don't know what's going on. But hopefully so I'll get through you this. Have, you have a three sons, correct? All yep, boys. Yep. Yes. One's, yeah. And what does that say about you, Bob? I, I guess that they all just choose to identify that way. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it might speak to your virility. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But our topic this week is the weaponization of language, which I think has a, a big effect on really everything that's going on politically and, and socially and culturally in the United States these days. I've been writing about this topic lately, uh, talking about it a little bit at events. But also, Bob, I think it has some impact on for example, the kind of rhetoric we're experiencing with the upcoming midterms in about a week and a half, uh, with a lot of the uh, socio-cultural battles uh, we see going on with Elon Musk apparently taking over Twitter. I think the parameters of language, the weaponization of language, the attempt to influence language for political means, uh, I think these themes are not going to go away anytime soon. And it feels to me like there's a real attempt out there to change the way we speak and, and the way we write. I don't think I'm imagining it. Oh, absolutely not. Like you said, just some obvious examples just to get people warmed up to this. I mean, I, I'm coming, as you know, Jeff, out of like the climate change energy policy debates. And there it was just routine that the obvious one is it used to be global warming and then they change it to climate change because that's non-falsifiable, whereas global warming technically it was awkward for a few years there where the global temperature wasn't continually rising. Um, okay. Also, too, they say like they just say, oh, they're for clean energy. Well, how can you be against clean energy? That means, oh, I'm for dirty energy. You know, if, so it's a lot of the things where, you know, the people on my side of those issues we would fall into the trap of like letting the people on NPR define the vocabulary that we were going to use. And you, you lost before the debate even began, if you're talking about clean energy or not, if you use that phrase. So we would deliberately not use those phrases, but still it was that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, talking about misinformation, you know what I mean? Like once you allowed the fact that, Oh gee, if I'm talking about vaccines or something, and that's automatically misinformation, you know, it's, they win the debate right out of the gate. Um, so, so Jeff, can, can we just maybe, start this off by you explaining you've got this in addition to everything else you're doing as the president and so forth. You're a published academic here. You've got something in the uh, 2022 issue of ethics and politics, uh, evolution or corruption, the imposition of political language in the West today. So can you maybe tell the viewers a little bit about, you know, have you been working on that for a while or where that came from? Well, I've always had an interest in language and, and I want to perhaps give an example here. When we think about how language changes or evolves, it's very complex. It's a very complex institution in society. And, and there's lots and lots of factors that go into the language we use. And the, the current 2022 version of English that you and I are using in the United States today, which is different than what they use in Wales or in, in England or in other English-speaking parts of the world. But nonetheless, uh, there's a very natural, spontaneous, in a Hayekian sense, evolution of language. 
And that's what we would expect. Uh, that's what we would want. And we can loosely analogize that to a free market uh, in, you know, a linguistic marketplace. But there are, also, uh, there are also attempts to impose what kind of language we ought to use on us. And this is generally done by people in more powerful positions. And we can analogize this loosely to a, a more interventionist economic system where the powers that be are attempting to steer or centrally plan somehow our linguistic marketplace. So language, at least written language back in the, in the, the pre-literacy uh, days tended to be controlled by uh, clerics, monks, uh, no noblemen. In other words, they were the only literate people who actually used the written language, but there, were, there was a more street-level language amongst or ordinary uh, people who, who didn't read and write. Uh, and then as, as the printing press and other uh, um, technology evolved, more and more people became um, literate. So as a result of that, that was a democratizing force, I suppose, in language. And so if you fast forward to today, of course, we don't speak Middle English anymore. Uh, we don't say thee and thou and that sort of thing. And that's perfectly fine. Language evolves and there, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, th there's also an attempt by uh, the, I would say, the equivalent of the modern-day clergy or monks or monarchs to impose uh, language on us in ways that are not organic or evolved or from the market. And so an example I use in the paper, just an easy, facile example, is this subtle but very important shift between the use of the word equality and now the new term is equity. And Kamala Harris actually highlighted this and featured it throughout her vice presidential campaign. And let me read uh, one of her tweets. She said, this is a couple of years back during the Biden in 2020. She said, equality suggests everyone should get the same amount. The problem with that, not everybody's starting out from the same place. So if we're all getting the same amount, but you started out back there and I started out over here, hmm, we could get the same amount, but you're still going to be that far back behind me. So equality, equity, as opposed to equality, uh, imagines that we all end up in the same place. So what she's doing, and not very subtly here, she's attempting to impose upon us the use of the term equity to, to discard the, the old-fashioned term equality. And of course, most of us in the U.S. anyway grew up with this idea of you know, equality under law, and it's a basic concept, the, the, the right to go out and seek happiness, but there's no guarantees. You know, you should be treated equally in a court of law or whatever, but we understand human inequality. We understand some people will be wealthier, more successful or happier or whatever it might be. But we were okay with that. The idea of equality was never uh, had a deterministic element to it, that we would have equal outcomes. That was never the American conception of the world, word equality. So when we shift to equity... Uh, then that changes things, that changes our whole way of thinking. And so I think you'll find that folks on the left don't use the term equality much anymore, whether politicians or media figures, whatever, they've replaced it with equity, and that that's on purpose, that that was uh, you know, done to make us change our way of, not just our way of speaking and writing, but ultimately our way of thinking, our way of viewing the issue. So um, it, it's just interesting to me that we, that we point out when, in this case, a political elite, Kamala Harris, is, is actively attempting to police or steer our language. 
Well, yeah, that's a good example. It, it, what's interesting on that is um, uh, is particular relevance to, for, for me is because in my essay on private law that was like the first half of my pamphlet, Chaos Theory, that now the Mises Institute publishes. Um, and so I wrote that in like 2002, I think, or maybe 2001, but roughly that period. And back then, equity wasn't a big thing. And so I actually contrasted. I said, instead of the equality that the left champions you know, market anarchists champion equity, of course, by which I meant, you know, like in other words, without context, we'd say, are you in favor of equity? You'd say, yeah. I mean, that because that's like, a, you know, mm-hmm. people get what they deserve or, you know, the rules are fair or something. It's equitable. Yeah, that's great. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, I knew that the word equality could be abused and to, you know, like to say income inequality. People just use that phrase as if it's per se a bad thing. And so, yes, you can just say, oh, no, we mean equality of opportunity or whatever. But I actually at the time made the judgment call that why don't we get away from discussion of equality and talk about equity? And so it's just kind of ironic that the left sees that. I want to be take it even more conspiratorial, Jeff. I think partly the reason they're doing that is because they know if they just focused on equality of outcome, um, which, you know, involve, kind of what Kamala Harris's thing is, that eventually if they have that in place for a few decades, it will be the case that even, you know, the original dispossessed, you know, minority groups or whoever would by any metric be ahead of the the former you know oppressor class and then right. at that point someone might say well you guys said you wanted a quality of outcome you've clearly got it so we can drop all these programs right and they could you know so i think they're they're mm-hmm. looking ahead to say no no even when that happens we still need to keep these you know the things in place that penalize these groups and help these groups and it doesn't matter if you know actually the the outcome spitting out the other end has them roughly equalized at that point we're still going to keep them in place because of the historical injustices so to me, that's partly why they're it's sort of like going from global warming to climate change to seeing, you know, even if it gets to the point when the globe isn't warming anymore, we still want all this machinery in place. So let's right. sort of, you know, give ourselves wiggle room. Well, and it's related to the the concept of dis- disparate impact theory, which comes out of Supreme Court jurisprudence. But it's also a shibboleth on the left, which is that wherever uh, unequal outcomes occur, those can only be the result of racism or oppression of some kind. That's the only explanation, not that humans are different. And so we need something to explain this. And so I think equity plugs into that disparate impact theory pretty well. And, and I want to point out, as I do in the paper, I'm not just using some vague sense of elites. When we think, well, who replaced the old literate clergy or popes or you know literate monks or monarchs of 500 years ago trying to you know use certain language euphemistic language to make the peasants more happy or something you know who are these supposed elites today well i think we can identify them i I think we can look at mainstream media as a big driver of linguistic imposition you know versus natural evolution uh, from the people i think we can look at academics writing in not just in journals but also on twitter and places like that so i think we can look at Sources like the Modern Language Association, which publishes the MLA Guide Style, the uh, the Chicago Manual, people, the Associated Press and Reuters, uh, both produce style guides. Uh, folks like Merriam-Webster Dictionary, for example, are part of this elite consensus, which attempts to impose language on us. And I will say this about Merriam-Webster, is in the wake of the George Floyd riots, there were some real attempts made amongst BLM activists, but also uh, people like the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, to say, hey, you know, we need a a new, broader, more inclusive, uh uh-oh, definition of racism. Because, 
you know, you and I, Bob, being of a certain age, we would say, well, racism is when you hate a particular racial group to the extent races are a real thing, or that you think a certain racial group is inherently inferior. Okay, you know, that's, that's racism. We understand that. But no, no, no. Uh, the folks over at Merriam-Webster basically changed things to say, well, you know, we need to, we need to say uh, uh, that racism is something wider than that. Uh, this the marginalization and or oppression of people of color based on a socially constructed racial hierarchy that privileges white people. And of course, going along with that is the constant repetitive use of this term systemic racism. Systemic. So what, what mm -hmm. we have here is a new definition that places all white people uh, in the context of being beneficiaries or perpetrators of racism, and also that we all, white or not, live in a system of systemic racism that, that cannot be avoided. It's, it's all around us like water to a goldfish. So as a result of that, the individual loses agency. You know, the white guy says, oh my gosh, I'm not a racist. You know, don't, please don't consider me a racist. I don't have any racial animus towards anyone. But that's no longer enough. The, you know, the individual's goodness or the individual's warm thoughts, uh, you know, the fact that he or she d does not engage in the sin of the heart, I would say, not a political thing. It's, it's a sin of the heart, which is racism, uh, that, you know, you can't escape it. So no matter how good you are individually, when something's systemic, when we use that term over and over again, it changes the whole debate. It shifts everything. So this is a great example of a linguistic imposition of an attempt, a top-down attempt, as opposed to a Hayekian bottom-up, uh, an attempt to impose not just new language on us, but, but new ways of thinking and acting as a result. And so now uh, systemic racism... You know, this is, it requires the whole system to be thrown out. You, you got to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And what does that mean? Does, does that mean capitalism too? Well, for many of them, yes, is exactly what it means. And yeah, just to underscore for the listeners, I, I know probably a lot, a lot of this audience is aware of these, you know, meanings and how it's used. But in, for the benefit of somebody who may have naively thought, oh, systemic racism just means like, there's lots of racists running around, right? And maybe they have positions of power. And so that's why the system is racist. No, no, no. It means what Jeff is saying, that the system per se is racist. So it doesn't matter. Even everybody, every cog in the machine might not be an individual racist. And it doesn't matter. And we're not putting words in their mouth. I've seen on Twitter debates like this where people will try to defend themselves and say, oh, no, I mean, look at this. This police officer, he, you know, he, he actually, we have no evidence that he was racist. And they won't come back and say, Oh, no, but he probably is a racist and we just don't know yet. Or let's look at his action. It's they'll come back and say that doesn't matter. You're missing the point. That's not even you're, you're thinking like in the 1960s where the debates were. That's where we've moved beyond that. And the other really fascinating and, and terrifying element of that definition that you read there, Jeff, was that they built in by definition racism. The way they just defined it can only be done by white people to minority groups. So it, if, if things like. You know, you you couldn't you might think prima facie looking at the NBA. Well, gee, they tend to hire a lot more black athletes than white athletes based on their you know standing in the population. So is that systemic racism? And among other possible defenses, you could say no, because by definition, black people can't be racist to white people under this terminology. Like that was literally baked into the definition. So again, they're they're I think cleverly 
arming themselves or adopting vocabulary that even when the tables turn by any metric, they're still on top, that it was baked into it from the get-go. Well, it, it is baked in, and a lot of the new lexicon, the imposed lexicon, I would argue, uh, has uh, admonitions embedded in the new terms, which is to say there's almost a form of begging the question. And let, let me give you a couple of examples. The term inclusive is certainly one of them. The term anti-racist is certainly one of them. So these words imply by their very usage that we all have to do something. Again, it's not good enough to just be a good person and sort of live your life uh, trying to be a good person and not harm others. You, you have an obligation you know, so I, I like this idea that, that words have admonitions embedded in them. Because what does anti-racist mean? It means an affirmative role for all of us to go out there and slay this dragon, which is systemically all around us. So we, you know, it's not enough to sort of wake up and just worry about your mortgage and your kids or whatever it might be. You have an obligation to go be an active anti-racist. Sa same with inclusion. You have an obligation to not simply go through your life or your work with your you know, particular friends or coworkers or social circle or whatever it might be. You, know, you have an affirmative obligation to go out there and think about and act upon the idea of inclusivity. So um, these words become uh, sort of a form of browbeating. They, you know, it, it's almost like your mom telling you to wear a hat or something mm -hmm. like that. You, you, you need to do this. So uh, and, and we've seen this go, you know, just recently, the other night with this uh, debate with Mr. Fetterman, the Senate candidate in Pennsylvania, um, we've seen this term ableist thrown around. Another new made-up term that I think is intended to push a particular viewpoint. Right. And I think you're right, Jeff, the, the function of these words, it's not to clarify. It's, you know, it's, it's continuation of what I was saying before, like when you say clean energy that right there is the opening and ending of the debate. Like, it's not like, let's think about whether we right. want Who's for energy. dirty yeah. energy. Right. And the same thing, or, to, or you know, obvious one, climate, climate denier. You know, who's going to say, oh, yes, I'm a climate denier. I mean, again, just the term, it, like, it doesn't even make sense. Of course. Well, it's, it's, to, now, it's to liken them to a Holocaust denier. Right. So it's that fun. But also, too, like, to say climate, like, oh, wait, so those are people who don't believe there's such a thing as the climate? They deny that? No, what it, you know what I mean? And when you push it, you can see how absurd it is, but yet they throw that term around like it's nothing or election denier. Oh, those are people who don't believe that like, elections exist? No, that's not what that means. But again, it's just this, you know, it goes, you know, Orwell and, you know, he had that famous essay on, on how language is used. It's that sort of mentality. And you're right. So the, with the using the able, by the way, I, in fairness, I just, I just want to be even handed here. Some of the stuff I think people were saying about Fetterman, like Tucker Carlson had a take where he was, saying, well, what if that machine gets hacked? And, you know, who, who knows what he's being controlled by? And I thought that was a little bit silly. But yes, to when, when people are talking about Fetterman raising concerns, like, geez, I don't know if this guy's able to be in the Senate if he's performing like that and just say, oh, that's able. It, like, it's the point of that is to shut down the debate, meaning if you even talk like that, you're a bad person. And again, so there, the, the it's hearkening to the term racist to mean you are just as bad as we've seen all these movies from the 1950s when people thought there should be different water fountains. And that's what you are right now. Mm -hmm. If you are against, mm -hmm. you know, trans stuff or you know, this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, transphobe. That's not, Oh, so it's people who are afraid of, no, that's not what they mean. They mean people who don't like them or who hate them. That's what the, even though phobia is supposed to be a fear of. So it's again, like these terms don't even make sense if you just sit there and look at them, but 
they're they're not everyone knows what they mean and it is to just shut down the debate because you're a bad person right. if you disagree with me on this. Right. And these are shutdown words. They're shutdown tactics and ableist is just that. I mean, the idea that we can't have any uh, even baseline requirements for physical or mental fitness to be a US senator. Okay. Well, you know, that's if that's what where your egalitarian program takes you, you know, last time I checked US senators vote on things like wars. <laughs> Uh, so I'd kind of like them to be all there, but you know, when you mentioned transphobe, the, the trans lexicon is perhaps the, the best example of imposed language right now in the West, because this is where there's just a dizzying array of new terms, the LGBTQ plus, you know, uh, and, and lots and lots of new terms. And if you look at the pronouns and the gender ideas, there are matrices boxes with, with dozens and dozens of them. And so here, when we think of words, when we think of language, it's just a simple tool of communication. You know, we're all we're all animals, uh, you know, running around, running around this globe here. And so we need words as a tool, just like we need a hammer to hammer a nail. And so if somebody sees a, a bus coming about to hit a pedestrian, you say, hey, watch out. And the idea there is not to just yell something unintelligible, although just the fact that you raise your voice in public might in and of itself alarm the, the guy about to step off the curb. But no, you, you have a specific word, watch out, which is designed to make him turn around and step back away from the bus. So that's, that's using words like a hammer, like a tool to achieve you know, some sort of interpersonal outcome between two human beings. And so, but when language becomes an institution, then you get into the, the, the idea of weaponizing language to steer people towards a certain uh, mindset or worldview. And, and it is specifically with the trans lexicon, for example, the term cis. Cis is designated to mean a heterosexual uh, breeder, you know, somebody who has uh, heterosexual sex to, with, a, with a, I guess, uh, that, that may or may not result in procreation. So this is now a term, a broad term, really kind of a made-up term, to be the equal to trans. So you have trans, which means crossing over, and cis, which means staying within your, your, your heterosexual kind, or how, how that's how it's used. And so you put these on equal footing. So cis which we could say represents 99.9% of all human beings who ever walked the earth. Now, all of a sudden, that's a category which needs explanation. And that category is on the same footing as trans. So it's no, it's not, it's no more usual or unusual. You know, some people are trans, some people are cis, some people have blue eyes, some people have green eyes. When in fact, of course, trans is, is very, very, very different. Uh, and very um, unusual in the purely statistical sense that that only a tiny, tiny fraction of human beings who ever walked the earth had this identification as 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 belonging to the sex other than that they were born with. So, you know, not, again, not subtle the idea that we have to use cis or we term ourselves cis. What that basically saying is to be a straight procreating person requires an explanation, mm -hmm. requires a label. And if you're trans, you, know, that, you, know, you probably think that's good. We should make these straight people you know, have to explain themselves because as trans people, we, we go out in this world where we feel 
you know, uh, deeply at risk or deeply imposed upon. And, and it's nice to turn, turn the, the tables on these straight folks. But if you're using that term, or if we as a society are just basically accepting that term into our new general, um, you know, lexicon, then we're giving in. We're giving in to a profound shift in thinking on our basic biology. And that's the point. The idea here is not to create understanding or communication between people, like when I say, watch out, because the bus is coming. You know, language ought to be about helping us negotiate human interaction with less friction and less violence and less unhappiness. But I would argue that imposed language like cis does the opposite. It's an attempt to beat people over the head and make them get in line with a new trans program of looking at human sexuality and biology in a new way. And it's a way you, dear listener, may not agree with. Yeah, exactly. So and also, too, it's you're perfectly right that it's it's not that, oh, wait, there's some new subtleties here and we need to fine tune our language to be able to handle these subtle cases with more nuance where it's completely upending like the standard things that people knew and how to communicate. And so now people, you know, get, so it may be that like the cutting edge academics could sit there and have an hour long discussion and not contradict themselves. But in practice, if you listen to like a trans activist, the typical one talk, they will contradict themselves. You know what I mean? Like, it's sort of like, you know, Oh, you are what you identify as. Okay. But then why do you need surgery? If you just are, you know, if if you were born with a penis, but you're really a woman, then why do you need a, you know, operation to, right. Or why is it, why is it managed to dress a certain way? Right, exactly. Like all these things, like couldn't you be, you know, a boy who likes pink? No, that's a girl. You know, it's it's really amazing how much a lot of this stuff is, forgive the term, just regressive. You know, the way they, they use that, that it's going back to like traditional stereotypes of the 50s. Instead of saying, hey, girls can play with trucks and wear jeans if they want to. It's now, oh, if your four-year-old girl wants to wear jeans and play with trucks... Maybe because she's really a well, bo- this, boy, or he's really a boy. You know, it's the, this this person who recently, this trans person who recently visited with Biden in the White House, uh, goes o- over the top with its exceedingly right, girly right. girl videos, which are designed to summon up every stereotype of uh, you know a little girl in the fifties or something. And so, so that's that's bizarre. But you know, the bewildering nature of the rapid changes in language, generally speaking, that's a good sign that something's being imposed rather than evolving naturally. Mm-hmm. And it's also particularly difficult for older people, you know, especially elderly people to, to sort of keep up with all this terminology and not. And, and so it's almost a big giant gotcha because you can say, if you're a trans activist, for example, that, well, you're, you're, um, a transphobe or a hater or whatever, because you didn't, you don't use this term right. or you didn't use my pronoun or whatever. So, uh, you know, the idea is to sort of uh, gaslight people into acquiescence because it's bewildering. And most people want to be kind. Most people don't want friction and tension when they're in public or uh, on social media or riding the bus or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. I mean, humans, we're, we're, we want to be cooperative. And so if there's a particular group which is really driving changes in language to sort of steer things their way, um, they want to put on such a full court press that most people will just go along with it because it's easier to go along with it than to immediately be vicious, viciously attacked or canceled mm-hmm. or labeled 
something. And so that is, that's the question. I mean, that's the question, whether we're going to just give in to this when we disagree. And, and look, a lot of people agree. Let's be fair here. A lot of people think, all oh, this trans language is great. I, I personally think it's an absolute tragedy, uh, especially with minors. But a lot of people think this is great, and we ought to adopt this language, and, and the faster the better— and, you know, and that anybody who can't keep up is a dinosaur who deserves to be unhappy. Yeah, my my guess is, Jeff, that like, whatever, five years ago, as this was you know starting to become more mainstream, that a lot of people like the typical Americans reaction was, oh, if there really are people like that, well, then, yeah, they should, you know, have the freedom to do what they want. And as long, you know, consultation with their doctors and their parents and whatever, if it's a minor and. Okay, and it must be a rare thing. Okay, but you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not an expert in that. And these, they got scientists telling me. Okay, and I certainly don't want to be like the person from the 1950s who opposed interracial marriage. You know, I don't want to be one of those people. Like I've right. been raised to say that that's the worst thing ever. And so, you know, all the movies and whatever tell me how bad that was. For far be it for me to be that person. So yes, I'm very open minded and tolerant. I'm not a bigot. And then, but if you had said, okay, now do you realize? Five years from now, like boys who just say I'm a girl can go change in the girls locker room in, you know, in high school, they would laugh and say, that's the crazy right wing conspiracy theory. Of course, no one's ever going to do that. Get out of here. Like that would have been inconceivable. And if they had known that that's what was coming, they would have opposed it. But no, they were just sold as are you tolerant of people who want to live a certain way? Yeah, of course I am. I'm not a bigot. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't I be? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that goes undiscussed. I've noted with trans, unlike during some of the earlier gay marriage uh, debates in, let's say, the early 1990s, there was DOMA and some other legislation at the time. There were some state initiatives later on in the 2000s to either allow or ban gay marriage. And so during that period, and of course, that's all settled now, but during that period, there's a lot of talk about immutability and people, people, especially on the right, would say, well, look, this is different, Bob than interracial marriage or something like that, because, you know, race is an immutable characteristic of a human being. And so some people in the gay marriage uh, activist community try to say, hey, look, one's sexuality, one's sexual preferences are just as immutable and hardwired in us as our eye color or our height or the color of our skin. And a lot of people pushed back on that and said, well, where's the proof of that? That's a, that's a scientific assertion, this and that, and it's not so easy to prove. But I've noticed we're not really having that debate now. You know, we're just saying that a person's mental state and self-image is, is everything. And so trans is just like race or, or it's just like a, a gay and lesbian rights. It's the, it's the exact same thing. It's not something we choose. It's just who we are. And so there, there's no more sort of debate or discussion on whether that's true. Um, well, and when you get when you get a big guy in the woman's bathroom like that spa out in Los Angeles that sparked a real horror show of protests and then counter protests by Antifa, it's not just an academic question. Right. And it's um, on that point, too. So I'm not by no means an expert here uh, on, the, on the, like what the other side's views are on these things. But I know at the very least that there is active tension. Like, for example, there, you know, there were some people. Uh, activists for homosexual rights that were saying, hey, there's like a gay gene. You know, we were born this way. Right. How can you discriminate against it? But other people in that activist movement were saying, no, 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 don't say that because then 
that's it either is or isn't. You know what I mean? No, we need the freedom to be whatever we want to be. I don't care what my DNA says. Don't pin it on that. And then, like you say, Jeff, too, that some want to say, hey, I was, you know, give me a break. I, I'm actually a girl mm-hmm. born, in a, born in a boy's mm-hmm. body. Of course, I need surgery and whatever to get. You want me to grow up in the wrong body. But then other people want to just say, no, today, you know, I'm neither male nor female today. It, like it's, it's whatever I declare is what I am. And so don't try to pin it to biology because then we're locked in. You know, no, it's complete subjectivism. So that's what I was saying earlier. Like a lot of this stuff, if you actually try to pin them down, it's not even internally consistent, at least the way it's used in practice among some of the activists. And so, yeah, maybe the high level academics have it all, you know, with dotted uh, I's and cross T's, but no pun intended. Uh, but, he, you know, here it's the way it's used in practice. It's completely incoherent. And I think but that's part of the that's that's a virtue. That's that's a, a, a feature, not a bug. Um, you know, you mentioned, Jeff, how like the older people can't keep up. And Michael Malice made this point. I thought it was pretty good where, um, you know, somebody might say ironically, like, you know, the term used to be uh, like a colored person. And now, like if somebody said that on air, that person could lose their job if they referred to a black person as a colored person. The preferred, you know, nomenclature is person of color. And it's like, those are kind of grammatically similar. It's just, you know, one has a preposition mm-hmm. or whatever. It's amazing that one means you get fired and one is, mm-hmm. and Malice's point was that that's on purpose, like to keep changing, you know, Afro-American, African-American, you know, color, person of mm-hmm. color, that, that, you know, it's just that fact shows there's this group who is in charge. They get to determine whether you're a racist mm-hmm. or not, whether you get to keep your job or not. And so once, you know, the debate unfolds with those terms conceded at the outset, it's obvious who's going to win that. And so, you know, you can sit there and argue about, well, should Asians be allowed to go to Harvard with this? But I mean, if you're already implicitly admitting it, no, of course, if I were to call the person the label that was used 30 years ago, then I lose my job. I mean, you're not winning that debate. Right. Well, they keep you on your heels with all of this stuff. And so for average people, the best course of action is just, just keep your mouth shut, right? Right. And go along. I mean, that's, that's clearly uh, what, what average people will do and, and are doing. Uh, you know, someone had sent around, and I know, I think you saw this, Bob, that uh, Brian Kaplan up at George Mason University had written a quick piece on his substack about privilege. And that's a term we hear a lot. I would suspect that a lot of uh, equity or BLM or Antifa or trans activists, it, it, were, were they to hear this podcast, they would accuse the two of us of having privilege because we're able to talk about, the, you know, for instance, trans in sort of a distanced way. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't immediately affect us when we go out into the world. Nobody looks askew at us. We're just a white guy and nobody, you know, it's kind of uh, basic. And, and so we have privilege. We have the privilege to have this conversation because no one's going to try to beat us up or something like that. And so Kaplan goes into privilege, I think, pretty well here. He's talking about, well, you know, if you take privilege to its, to its logical uh, conclusions, that could be all kinds of things. They're like pretty people. There's there's athletic people, there's tall people, there's people who are, uh, you know, really good at music or have a born with just a natural singing voice. I mean, there's just endless kinds of privilege. And of course, the ultimate is, is uh, you know, you're born into a rich family. Oh my gosh, you know, you're super privileged. But he's got this, this point here where he says, the point of talking about privilege, and privilege is very much an imposed word mm-hmm. with a lot of embedded exhortations, let's just say. The point of talking about privilege is to make innocent people feel guilty. 
So again, it's this idea we have to go out and do something to atone for our privilege as opposed to just, you know, not hurting people in the libertarian sense. Right. Or at the very least, um, you keep, like you said, keep your mouth shut. You know what I mean? Like, oh, let me talk. Oh, the issue of reparations is coming. Well, what I think is, no, 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 check your privilege. You have no point in this conversation because you're, you know, like you say, a mm-hmm. white guy or whatever. So you, you have no idea what. And by the way, as we say this stuff, it's it is true. I mean, you know, I quick story. I was when I was at NYU, Jeff, I was I kept looking. It is true. You're a white guy. That is true. Yes. I would love the, the cats. Murphy. Out of the bag. Murphy. <laughs> that sounds Irish. Yeah. You could be black Irish. Well, and also, too, as you know, like when the Irish first came over, you know, they were not considered, you know, white in the se- in the sense of the people. So, they, you know, they were called derogatory terms, which we can't say on the air. Um, Bob, you're a you're a full you're a full partner with the Mises Institute. We don't see color. <laughs> right. I know. Um, but when I was at NYU, I, w- I was looking for a cheap apartment and I was going into areas that were, you know, a little bit rough. And I think I was in northern Harlem. And this was broad daylight. And I saw a cop car just turn their lights. They pulled a U-turn and like because they wanted to go the other way on the street. And a lady pushing a baby carriage like had to get out of the way. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they would have hit her. But she made sure she put some distance between her and the street because they that cop would not have driven like that, you know, on, on Broadway, let's say. So I'm, I'm saying mm, that. Yes. I am acknowledging that, yes, where I grew up in my suburban community, where I didn't see things and I probably would not have believed certain stories of police brutality. So I, I understand where people are coming from, but you're right. The way the language is used, it is you do not get to participate or like on the abortion debate, you know, men, it, that's another example, Jeff, of the of the contradiction. Men aren't allowed to speak. What if it's a trans man? Can can that person? Oh, well, because I thought trans men were men. So can you know what I mean? And it's so that even the activists sometimes don't you know keep their stay in their lane in terms of what they're laying down as the rules but it doesn't matter it always means the leftist progressive thing is the one that wins and anybody who challenges that is a bigot and keep your mouth shut right but the the inconsistencies and the constant changes i think are part of it those go to the destabilizing demoralizing effect on most people you can call it gaslighting right yeah we're going to keep changing the terms of these debates and the one constant is you lose. You lose the debate. Right. Just like if, you know, if someone's being interrogated over the course of months and they're just trying to break them down without like physically torturing them. Yeah. Just keep them on their heel. Like it's lights on, lights off, playing blurry music and just all kinds of, oh, OK, we're, well, we told you we're going to give you food right now. And so here you go and, and you know, and give you bugs or something. You know what I mean? Just just messing with you. So, yeah, you have no foundation, no sense of reality and you don't know up is down, left is right. And that's the way to to make somebody crack. And you're right. That's what that's what they're doing here, that it's not simply that, oh, they're not logical thinkers and they contradict themselves. Ha ha. That that's part of the purpose of it. It is to be illogical. Like, you know, in Orwell's we keep coming back to him to say war is peace. You know, that's it's not that Big Brother and the people involved with that didn't realize the contradiction. That was the point is to, you know, get people to believe. And, and you know, my take, Jeff, I don't know if you agree. I think that's part of the function of some of this stuff is, you know, what purpose does it serve? Like, why are these activists, you know, focusing on schools or taking kids to drag queen story? Like you would think on paper, if you were going to plot something to ferry, like they could have picked something else. But I think it's to precisely assault like traditional middle class bourgeois values because, you know, just to say, like, what's the craziest thing we can think of? Boom, we're going to do that. And you know, once we get you to accept that, then you're going to go along with anything. If, if you're going to, if we're going to say 
it's normal for somebody being confirmed to say, hey, what's a woman? And to say, I'm not a scientist. I don't know. Like once that becomes normal, like to talk about does, right. does more money lead to higher prices? I mean, that's like way more sophisticated a question than what's a woman. Well, and that Kaplan actually wraps up his short substack with this, and I'm quoting him. What is to be done? First and foremost, hold the line. Keep speaking normal English. Don't be intimidated by words masquerading as arguments, by which he means a word like privilege. And if you must speak about privilege, be clear that no one can legitimately win an argument by changing the way they use words. So uh, the, the end of my paper, we'll post a link to it for anybody interested. The end of my paper, I talk about that. I say, look, what does this ever-shifting imposed language mean for our basic metaphysics and epistemology? I mean, we talk about the physical sciences, and the physical sciences, a cubic foot of water is a cubic foot of water. We, we need a very precise a concept of that. Uh, uh, you know, a yard is a yard. A measurement of force or heat or weight is a measurement of force or heat or weight. So we have all these things where we just assume that we, we're all in widespread agreement as to the meaning of the, the words we use, because everything we learn, all of human cognition and all of human learning, you know, we put everything we, we take in through our eyes or ears or other senses, everything we read on paper, we put this into language. We put this into words. You don't sort of stare at a tree and say, thing. You know, you, 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 you conceptualize a tree in nature as a tree. You have a word for that in your mind. And so uh, linguists will talk about this, is that, you know, all of our cognition goes through words. So if we're changing words, or if we're changing the meaning of words, or if we're no longer agreeing on the basic meaning of words— you know, what does that mean for a discipline like economics? What are we even talking about? We, we all become these sort of postmodernists. How do we make truth claims? Or even how do we even assert uh, the idea of an axiom or whatever it might be if we can't agree on the, the definitions of the underlying words we use in, in this whole cognitive exercise of learning or arguing or debating? It, it's really fraught if, if, if it plays out far enough. Well, yeah, and that's, I mean, what you just uh, sparked something there, Jeff. The example Mises would use all the time is the very term inflation, that historically that meant an increase in the quantity of money and or credit, and then it had obvious effects that typically went hand in hand with it, namely, you know, prices quoted in that money going up. Whereas today, most people, when they say inflation, that means rising prices. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but Mises said, you know, once you change the label or the term to refer to the symptoms, it's much more difficult to, you know, figure out the culprit to understand what's causing this. If you if the very term now refers to the symptoms rather than the cause. And so, um, you know, now the Fed can pose as fighting inflation when, you know, it says to an Austrian, that's crazy. That's like it's not just that's, you know, happens to be wrong empirically like that's that's nonsense to talk like that you know, using the, the terminology the way that we think would be more appropriate. Can I ask you, Jeff, so yes, hold the line, but I, do you, uh, where I'm coming from is, um, again, a, a, an example from Michael Malice is where he, he doesn't say mainstream media, he says corporate press. And the mm -hmm. reason he does that, and I've, I've heard him explain this to people, is that he thinks that um, a leftist, when, you know, when you, you're underscoring the fact that, hey, these, you know, MSNBC, CNN, where these are giant corporations, normally, 
you're skeptical of them and they're what their agenda is. And so, you know, so that's why he uses that term to like to give them cognitive dissonance. And so I've, I've used it cause I was like, Oh yeah. Cause mainstream media, it's not even true anymore. Like that's partly why that phrase mm-hmm. I didn't want to use anymore. Cause it's almost giving them more credit than they deserve. Cause they're not main, you know, they're not the, the dominant sources for anybody. And so I liked his thing. And so I use that too. And I had some right wingers, you know, telling me what, what's wrong with corporations. Now we're anti. So anyway, mm-hmm. I'm just curious what your thoughts, Jeff, is it, like, oh, yeah, we use their tactics when it makes sense or no, that's sort of like you start dealing with the devil yourself then. Well, I get where malice is coming from and, and corporate media is not inaccurate. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a correct appellation. But look, that that's a bigger strategic question. We fight fire with fire. Do we become obtuse? Do we uh, try to start shading things? And of course, you see all... You know, they're, they're, uh, if a left winger were on this show, he or she could come up with all sorts of examples on the right. They would say, that, you know, pro-life. Yeah, right. You know, that's an embedded that there, there's there's things embedded in there that are that make that that shade the argument against abortion. Right. Well, who could be against life? Right. No, you guys aren't pro-life. You're anti-choice. Right. Right. right? And there's a million ways to present or frame virtually any political matter in the U.S. today. But I, I guess I'll, I'll finish with this, then you can have the last word. We, we ought to be aware of it. We ought to understand that it's happening all around us because we tend to think, oh, my gosh, such and such party needs to win this midterm election. I, I don't really, you know, I don't have any faith in Republicans to do anything. But Or we look at something like, oh, Elon Musk needs to buy Twitter or, you know, we, we look at these sort of uh, bigger battles where there's an identifiable uh, winner and loser, perhaps. But we, we need to understand that just that language is an institution in society. And like all institutions in society, whether that's religion or government or education or media or performing arts or theater or literature, music, whatever it might be, the institution of language is is under progressive assault. And so we should expect progressives, and I, I, I believe there are both left and right progressives, but we should expect progressives to attempt to uh, destabilize and use language as a weapon in their broader war, uh, cultural, social, political war, and that we've been naive about this, that people in economics, for example, political science, uh, any number of disciplines haven't thought enough about language and its evolution and its importance in society. And so that is dangerous, especially in the social sciences, I argue, to be sort of blind or naive to this. Right. And that's um, in one way, again, that manifests itself is where like you to show that, oh, I'm I'm worthy to participate in the discussion as you use the nuances like I've heard, Jeff, that you, you hate the term public policy. And yet that's a very, you know, like it shows like, oh, no, I can talk with these people who are from the Harvard School of Government and I can, blah, 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 you know, because I know the term public po- or the difference between fiscal and monetary policy. Like, I know what people mean by that yeah. distinction, but in practice, you know, so it's again, you're, you're sort of conceding the terms of the debate. Um, I would encourage people because one area where this stuff really matters a lot is with war. And, and I know we were talking a little bit before we started recording, Jeff, about the euphemisms for war. George Carlin has a great bit on this, again, to show this isn't just a right wing, you know, people complaining that 
Orwell and Carlin, people notice this too with when it comes to war. And where Carlin, he has a whole, you know, people go to YouTube, just like type George Carlin shell shock, and you'll probably find the clip where he goes and says, like, how after World War One, that, you know, the veterans were diagnosed with shell shock. And he was saying that was a very one, two, two syllables, and it, it kind of even conveyed what it was. And then he just goes through and just, you know, tells in his bit how the army changed what it, the term it used to refer to that condition over time. You know, one of them was post-traumatic stress disorder and other ones were even more And the syllables just kept growing and it just sort of numbed you and desensitized you to it. And, you know, in general, like that's clearly how they what they use, uh, you know, to, euphemism is one way to describe it, but it just desensitizes people to what the actually is happening. And so you can just use this this very technical antiseptic language to talk about horrible government policies uh, that are inflicting real harm on people. So this isn't merely just a matter of, you know, oh, it's harder to get to the truth of the debate. Like this really is changing the way people think about something because they're changing, you know, the words you use. Well, that's about it for today, folks. We will link to the paper I wrote. Uh, called Evolution or Corruption, which is actually available for free on the journal's website. Uh, we will link to George Orwell's essay from 1946 called Politics in the English Language, which is really short. And if you haven't read it, it's very important that you do because it explains so much. And I, and I use Orwell quite a bit in the paper. And I'm also going to provide a link to this book from 2001 called Junk English by a guy named Ken Smith, who I've been unable to track down. Actually, uh, I'm not, I hope he's still alive. I don't know if he's an older gentleman or not. But at any rate, uh, this book goes, uh, is very prescient back in 2001 about all the euphemisms and uh, puffed up language that we would soon be facing. So all that said, uh, Bob, congratulations on your new edition. Uh, hope, hope you get some sleep. And thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Have a great weekend. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.